I can't think of a, a better book for us to continue to be in tonight after hearing uh, tonight, this morning, uh, than the book of Acts. So turn to Acts, Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15. Like I just said, the brother, they're part of the movement. They're taking the gospel uh, across to the other side of the globe. They're carrying a gospel that we're called to carry every single day because we're part of the movement too. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, you're part of the mission. And so that's what we've been studying about, this mission that goes all the way back. Origins go all the way back uh, to what we've been studying in Acts, recorded right there beginning in Acts chapter 1. And, uh, and I want you to know this, that we carry a gospel that's powerful to save. And we have an enemy, though, that wants to stop the advancement of that gospel, wants to distort that gospel, wants to pollute that gospel, wants to distract us from that gospel, is relentlessly trying to do those things, which means we're called to relentlessly, to relentlessly defend it. And we see defenders of that gospel going all the way back to the early days of the church. And what the enemy's really good at is this, is convincing people, even believers at time, Times that when Jesus died on the cross, when he rose again, that that the enemy likes to convince us that that what happened there and the work that was accomplished is not really enough to save you. It's not really enough to keep you saved. That Jesus isn't enough. In fact, that's the language that Andrew used there for the point five percent of people, which is just a tragic statistic in Poland of people who just don't believe that Jesus is enough. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. They don't believe Jesus and God's grace through the finished work of Jesus on the cross is enough and that it's enough to get us into the family of God. I mean, getting into the family of God sounds like a pretty hard thing to get into. You have to, you know, we all have to kind of acknowledge that, right? Uh, We can think of some things that are hard to get into. When I was a boy, I had dreams of becoming a professional athlete, believe it or not. I know I, I didn't make it. Um, but I, when I was a, 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 like 9, 10, 11 years old, I was sure I was going to be a major league baseball player. I played little league baseball. I played a lot of baseball. When I was not at the park, I was, uh, you could find me probably uh, on the road in front of my house with a baseball bat and a tennis ball. But in my mind, I was in Fenway Park. It was always every evening, the seventh game of the World Series. The game was tied, bottom of the ninth, two outs. And I was at bat and the team was depending on me. And up went the tennis ball and into the neighbor's yard. And I rounded the bases and I won the World Series and the crowd was cheering. And then all of a sudden I heard my mom yell, I don't know, hey boy, did I tell you to get in here and get ready for dinner? You know, she just ruined my dream. But I had in my mind hopes that I'd make in the major leagues. And as a boy, you think, and maybe you guys can, you know, acknowledge this. Maybe you play football, basketball. When you're a kid, you're like, it's not that hard. I just got to work hard at this. I just got to play middle school ball and high school ball. I'll play college ball and I'll get drafted. The rest will be history, man. I'll make it into the major leagues. And then you realize that being a professional athlete is much more difficult than that, right? And most of us men in the room, those hopes and dreams of being a professional athlete are behind us, unless you're Tim Tebow, right? He's got another shot at it. That injected a burst of hope into all 30 and 40 year old men. They're like, sweetheart, I'm going to the gym. Tebow can do it. Maybe I can too. Call me urban. Put me in. Maybe you had dreams of getting into uh, medical school and you realize how difficult it is to get in. Maybe you've been through the process of trying to get your 
kids into a certain program or a certain type of school and, and the difficulties and it's difficult to get. And I've been in places before, in front of places before, highly secured places like the White House. I went there on a field trip one time and there we stood outside the gate and I thought it's got, it's difficult to get in here. I could try. I could try to climb this gate and run for it. I ain't going to make it that far across that lawn, right? We know what it means to be, for it to be difficult to get into certain places. But with that in mind, when it comes to the getting on to think about this, the most important team in the universe. When it comes to joining the most important movement in existence, the most important thing to ever be a part of, the most prestigious membership into the most significant kingdom that there is, how do you get in? How do you get in? When you tell some people, they think it's just too good to be true. It seems unbelievable. And what's sad is even as believers, after receiving a free gift of salvation and entry into that kingdom... Sometimes we make it harder on ourselves to stop and remember that we are in through Christ Jesus. That's what is being addressed in Acts chapter 15. Would you stand with your Bibles open? Acts chapter 1, because it's a hold your breath kind of moment where the purity of the gospel is at stake and division of the church church can happen because the gospel, some are trying to redefine it. Spoiler alert, the advancement of the gospel is unstoppable. But let's read verse one. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to, a, to go up to Jerusalem. By the way, I'll just make this, give you this detail here. Uh, you'll see at times like they're going to go down to uh, Antioch, and yet if you look at a map, Antioch is above Jerusalem. But know this, the topography of that area, Jerusalem is a mountainous area. Anytime you're going away from Jerusalem, you're going down no matter what direction you're going in. Anytime you're going to Jerusalem, the way that it reads is you're going up. So if you're wondering that, there you go. So go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And it brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with, had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. And he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them and having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing the yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I pray that you would help refresh our hearts with the beauty of the gospel this morning. Lord, help those of us who are in Christ Jesus this morning, Lord, be blown away once again by the love that you have shown us, Lord, that through the gospel, that in Christ, we are not working for your love, that in Christ, we get to rest in your love forever. And we're thankful for that. But help us to remember that in a deeper way this morning. And I pray, Lord, that there's someone here who does not know you. That this morning they would receive the gospel and receive eternal life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
just a little bit of background to Acts chapter 15. We're going to move quickly this morning. Uh, Acts chapters 10 through 14, what we see happening and what we've been studying is the gospel is getting out into the parts of the world that Jesus promised it would, to the ends of the earth. It's reaching Gentiles. And this is exciting, right? The movement is kind of taking on a different look because Gentile believers are being saved, different culture, different backgrounds. So it looks a lot different than uh, those Jewish believers who had been saved. So it's taken on a different look, and, but not everybody is super like happy about that, right? That's not settling well with everybody. But Paul and Barnabas, what happens here at the beginning of Acts chapter 15 is this is right after their first missionary journey. So the Jewish Jerusalem council is happening between the end of their first missionary journey and the beginning of their second. All right. What's happened is Paul and Barnabas, they've had an incredible missionary journey. Like all kinds of stuff has happened. Uh, Paul got stoned. He almost died. Uh, Barnabas was called uh, uh, Zeus. They thought he was a, a Greek God. And they said, no, no, that's not true. So they had all these highlights, all these crazy highlights. And yet at the end, the one highlight that Luke focuses on at the end of 14 is that the door is wide open to the Gentiles. They're receiving the gospel. And so Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch, a Gentile church where a lot of this began. That was their sending church uh, that sent them out on their first missionary journey. And they go back and they're given a report. And it's exciting, but we know that when the gospel is advancing, the enemy is attacking. So we can kind of set our watch here and know that an attack's coming. And so from Jerusalem coming to town, I guess they heard some things going on. They heard that these Gentile Christians were, or uh, that, that these Gentile believers, they had gotten saved. And so some Jewish believers come into town, Paul and Barnabas are there and they begin to teach something. They begin to teach, Hey, we know that you guys have received the gospel that Paul and Barnabas gave you, that you guys are excited about how you sent Paul and Barnabas out on this missionary journey. And all these other Gentiles have been saved, but they, these Jewish believers came into town and they told these Gentile believers in Antioch, they said, listen, we're glad that you guys have believed in Jesus. We do too. We're glad that you guys have accepted the gospel. That's good. We're glad that you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, but you're kind of only halfway there. There's some more that you need to do in order for you to really miss hell and gain heaven, in order for you to really experience salvation. And specifically, here's what you need to do. You need to keep the law of Moses and a big part of it, a specific part of that. You can look in Deuteronomy. They're probably very convincing. They said, you've got to be circumcised, to which all the Gentile men all right, said, do what? Right? That means that the membership class in church that week was only like women and children. The men were in the car going, I got to pray about this, right? I'll check this out next week. But before you kind of write this off as just nonsense, uh, a lot of uh, those, those first Christians, those Jewish believers, they loved, they, they loved and respected their tradition and the, the religion that they've been brought in, up in. The Jewish, uh, those Jewish traditions had, had kind of... Uh, you know, created disciplines in their life where they had learned God's word. They learned about who God was. They learned all those Old Testament attributes about who God is. And so they, 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 they loved the Old Testament. They had grown up in that, in that kind of culture, right? And, and so, and they also knew that in the Old Testament, by the way, do you know this, that in the Old Testament, that the Great Commission is alive and well? That God is after saving Gentiles in the Old Testament? Like he is in the New Testament. Now, Jesus comes and he finishes the work on the cross that very explodes where it makes it accessible to people to the ends of the earth. But in the Old Testament, you can read the prophets, and we'll get to that in a second, that hey, God made salvation available and coming into his family available to Gentiles. It just, but you did have to follow the law. You did have to adopt the practices of the Jewish faith. You did have to be a circumcised. 
And so for those Jewish believers, we can understand why it was difficult for them to understand why the Gentile believers, they just needed to place their faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. But the truth of the matter, and they had to come to grips with this here in this council, is that Jesus came to fulfill the Mosaic law. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He came to uphold it perfectly. He came to satisfy. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again. And now because of what he does, we don't have to carry around the burden of keeping the law in order to have approval in the sight of God. We don't walk around with the burden of having to try to keep the Mosaic law. We simply place our faith in Jesus and what he has done, and that is enough. All right, That's what we teach. That's what we believe. That's what Paul and Barnabas preached. That's what they taught. That's what those Gentile believers believed. And this is what these Jewish believers who come down are teaching and attacking. And so Paul and Barnabas, man, they're, they're throwing down. It says there was no small dissension. I love the way that Luke talks. Like he talks that way in other places. There was no small number of people who came to faith in Jesus Christ, right? I don't know how he would uh, describe 2020, you know. It was, there was no small interruption in the year 2020, you know. It, it's just the way he talked. But when he says there was no small dissension, he, what he meant is they threw down. They were viciously attacking their attack against the gospel. And things get so heated that they actually get a group of people together. Paul and Barnabas are like, come on, we're going up to Jerusalem. We're going to meet with the apostles. We're going to have a big meeting about this. And we're going to settle this because this is about to divide the church. And they get there and they start explaining. And in verse five, it says that some believers there in Jerusalem were believing Pharisees. And this kind of goes, oh, okay, maybe they, they possibly, scholars believe, were the ones that probably sent that crew of guys down to Antioch to begin to try to correct in their mind the gospel and teach them that circumcision was necessary. And there's a debate here and, and it's an important debate. The very core of the Christian message is at stake right here. And it's got a potential to divide the church. And what we see in this text really quickly this morning is we see two potential off ramps that we are tempted to take as a church and as individual Christians that can get us off the, the gospel path that God has called us to be on for kingdom effectiveness and gospel advancement. And the first one that we see is this, and we're kind of already into it, and this is what we need to do. We have to avoid the off-ramp of diversion from the gospel. What I love in verse 7 is this. As the apostles are, are in there and the, these believing Pharisees are there and they're debating, what I love is, I love what it says there in the middle of verse 7, and it's easy to miss. It says this, Peter did what? He stood up. Peter stood up. In the middle of this false teaching, in the middle of this attack against the purity of the gospel, it says he stood up. He doesn't say, there's a lot he doesn't say here. He doesn't say, hey, come in, let's figure this out. Maybe we can work around this issue. Maybe we can try to keep some unity here. Maybe we can work around it. Maybe we can, hey, we probably need to avoid some conflict. We don't want to just be fighting in here. That could be a bad look for us. That could be a bad look for the church. This isn't going to look good. No, he says, this is a hill worth dying on right here. The purity of the gospel, fighting for it. And as Christians, listen, we're not to look for fights around every corner. We're not to look for fights around every corner on social media and just to go to blows with everybody we can find to go to blows with. By the way, that's not the best place to fight anyway. But that's another sermon for another day. But we're not just looking for fights, right? But at the same time, we will not be a church that compromises truth. We will not move off from what God's word has spoken when it comes to just what truth is. 
We will not move off from what God's word has said about how we are to view sexuality. We will not move off from what God's word has to say about how we're to view life and value life in the womb. And we will not move off from what God's word has to say about the most important issue that impacts how we see and approach every other issue. And it's the gospel. On this truth, we will stand. And for this truth, we will die. That Jesus plus nothing equals everything and Jesus plus anything else equals nothing. That is the gospel. Verses 7 and 8. What Peter does to argue his point is he reaches all the way back to, remember the Cornelius? Brandon preached on the conversion of Cornelius and his family a few weeks ago in chapter 10 of Acts. And believe it or not, that was 10 years before this council. So they've covered a lot of ground between chapter 10 and chapter 15. And Peter right here, as you read, he reaches back to that moment. That's what he's, he's referring to. He said, hey, do you guys not remember? Let me remind you what I saw, right? I was there when Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and his family got saved and the spirit fell down, just like it fell down at Pentecost. And I saw them repent of their sins. I saw them broken over their sins. And I saw the power of the spirit fill them. And I saw them begin to put their life at the disposal of Jesus Christ. They were saved. There was no doubt about it. And guess what they didn't need? They didn't need the Mosaic law to follow. He explains their heart. He says it right there. Their hearts were cleansed by grace through faith. And in verse 10... He's saying this. He's saying, God's, guys, God's made it clear about how this all works. He says, because think about it. He says, why, why are we trying to put the yoke that was a burden on us? Were any of us able to keep the law? Any of us able to keep the Ten Commandments? Did any of that work to get us in right relationship with God? No. So why are we going to take that off us and put that on them? It doesn't make sense. In verse 13 through 18, James stands up and he says, yeah, I'm with Peter. Peter's right. James stands up and James is the older brother of Jesus, who's, of course, not the James who was martyred a few chapters ago that we read about. This is the brother of Christ. He's a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. He's a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. By the way, brother of Christ becoming a disciple of Christ. That's a pretty uh, convincing apologetic, by the way, for the validity of the resurrection. All right. A great piece of evidence there. Right, that for the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, does anybody have an older brother in here? Anybody have an older sibling? Right? How likely are you to believe that he's God and that he rose from the dead? What would it take for you to believe that? All right. So the fact that you got James right here who's standing up and defending truth the way that he is, pretty good apologetic right there. But James quotes Amos. He could have quoted a lot of other Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Zechariah, all of them say something similar. All of them prophesy from that, that from Gentile nations, God's going to save people to the ends of the earth. He's going to adopt people into his family. He quotes Amos as if to say, God, God already told us this was going to happen. God already told us that he's going to save people from every nation, from Gentile nations. And in verse 19, James is saying this. He's saying, therefore, based on all of that, based on what we have stated, based on the testimony of Paul and Barnabas there, based on what Peter has said, based on what I've shared with you, therefore, my judgment is, since there's nothing else that needs to be added to the gospel, there's nowhere else in scripture, there's nothing that Jesus said that gives us any impression that you need anything else except faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross Based on that, it is my judgment, and he's talking for Jewish, Jewish believers. He's saying that we Jewish believers should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. We should not stand in their way. We should not be putting stumbling blocks in front of them. We should not be making it more difficult to receive the gospel and to believe in it than it really is. 
He's saying the gospel is offensive already in and of itself. It's basically telling you that you're a low-down, rotten, black-hearted sinner who can do nothing in and of your own strength or wisdom to make your way and to be right in the sight of a holy God. That's pretty offensive, especially in a culture today where everybody's great. You're awesome. You can do it. Keep fighting. Keep dreaming. Reach for your dreams. Follow your heart. The gospel says, no, 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 no. Don't follow your heart. Bad idea. Theology, according to Disney, will lead you to bad places. Don't follow your heart. Right? The Bible says your heart's rotten. Your, your heart's sinful. Because God's holy. And in his holiness, it exposes that. The, the, the law of God exposes that. Right? And so, it's already offensive. Don't, don't add to it. The offensiveness by saying you don't only need to trust in Jesus Christ and have faith, but you need to try to do a whole lot of other things and you need to try to follow a lot of these Jewish practices and you also need to be circumcised. This was a moment, I believe, a crucial moment for the Jewish believers in that church in Jerusalem and throughout the world as they would hear reports of this council. I think it was a moment for their hearts to be refreshed as to what the gospel is. That as much as they appreciated their tradition, that their tradition had no power to raise them to new life. That the only reason that they are saved is because of the grace of God. That God's grace is enough. All right, That's not only a reminder that Jewish believers need, that's a reminder that we need. All right, We need to, to be reminded of that this morning if we are believers in this room today. That in Christ, my religious performance cannot and will not make me more clean in the sight of God or compel him to love me any more or any less than he already does in Christ Jesus. Circumcision is not our stumbling block, but I can tell you what it is. Man, if I can just, if I can just try a little harder, if I can get my stuff together, if I can read my Bible a little bit more, if I can really this year try to get that one-year Bible plan, I always mess up around mid-January, right? If I could just really read my Bible more, if I could get myself in a church and plugged in as much as I think that I should, or as much as I think God thinks that I should, then maybe I can eventually, if I work hard enough, I've already trusted in Jesus Christ, but I'm not sure if he's pleased with me because of the things that are going on in my life and because sometimes I get things wrong and because sometimes I fall, if I can just keep trying and also placing my faith in Jesus Christ, then eventually he'll give me the thumbs up. That maybe if I just keep my head down, maybe if I just keep keeping the rules, then I can get to like the level of awesomeness in that side of God. And these Jewish believers, and, and we here this morning, believers as well, need to be reminded again that you are made clean, completely clean, completely forgiven, completely new start, completely new life, completely new family, completely new purpose. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you can't add to that. We come to him a complete mess with only the only thing we have to offer him is a big rotten mess, which is our sinful life. And what does he do? Because he loves us when we come to him in humility and repent of our sins and throw the full weight of our faith on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He takes our mess and he gives us life. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. That in Christ, God's love is not something that you work for anymore. It is something you rest in. And you work from. It changes the way you pursue holiness. Now you pursue holiness because he loves you, not because you're trying to earn his love. I thought about this story, and I've shared this before. This, um, I remember Emma, my daughter, was probably three or four years old. And we loaded up with the in-laws, and we all got in one vehicle and started headed out to the Clay County Fair. And so several years ago, and, but it was a nice night. I remember I was driving 
And everything was, it's just one of those nights, everything was going great, right? And uh, we get close to the Clay County Fair, to the, to the fairground out there, and go to pull in. And I remember Rebecca saying, Emma doesn't look good. And you know how when you're two or three-year-old, they start looking a little white, and they, they, they kind of look like they're getting a little sick. It's like a time bomb. You're like, oh, I don't know. Okay, we got to get her out of here. And as soon as she said that, I heard like a gurgle, and then boom. It's like, what just hit my neck? <laughs> now, listen, let me tell you this. I feel like I, I don't get scared of a lot of things. A lot of things don't throw me off, all right? If somebody shows up, I was kind of feisty. I was kind of a fighter before I came to Christ the age of 18. And so it's not a whole lot scares me. If there's a noise in the middle of the night, I kind of, in a weird way, like that. I'm like, let's go, right? Liam Neeson, right? Grab my gun, bring it on. But let me tell you one thing that gets me, kid vomit, all right? I, I'm, I'm telling you, Father's Day is coming up. I, this is not a father year type moment for me, all right? My wife is wonderful in those moments. I'm not. I'm like out in the hallway going, do y'all need some help? I'm like uh, gagging. Like I'm praying for you out here. But in that moment, I mean, it was everywhere in the car. Gross moment, right? She was a mess. Two reactions in that car. One, I threw it in park and I was running for somewhere. The other reaction was my wife and my mother-in-law. I can't remember where my father-in-law was at. He might have ran too. But my mother-in-law and my wife, they go the opposite direction. They dive at her. They hold her. They get her mess on them. They're grabbing, you know, anything they can. Blankets to, to clean up that mess. Telling her she's going to be all right. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Can you imagine in that moment, Emma, standing outside of that car as we're cleaning her up? By the way, I was just like, burn the car. Burn the car. <laughs> just burn it all. Burn her clothes. But can you imagine... Emma standing outside of that car, apologizing, going, Daddy, I'm sorry. Mommy, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'll wash the car. I'll make it right. I, I'm sorry that I made things a mess. I, I'll pay to get it detailed. Can you imagine her standing outside of that car going, Mommy, I, I, if you can clean me up, I, I'll pay you back. I, I'll do the laundry for the rest of the month. I'll make it up to you. I'll do whatever. No, what is she going to say? She's going to say, Sweetheart, we're going to say, Sweetheart, you, you, you sit still. You stand there and we're going to clean you up. Your mommy's going to clean you up. But we're... <laughs> But then Rebecca, she, 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 and, and her mom, they began to, to clean her up and hold her, tell her she was going to be all right. Why? Because that's what love does. It compels a parent to jump into the mess to make things right. Even when a child has nothing to offer but their mess. That's what love does. And that doesn't even begin to illustrate the kind of mess that we bring to God. When we bring our sin to him, our filthy rags. And yet here's the beautiful transaction that happens. Jesus, that Jesus offers us when we kneel at the cross. When all we bring to the table is our rotten mess. And we, we kneel at his feet, the feet of the redeemer. He says, I'll take your mess on this cross and you get my righteousness. You get my forgiveness. You get Life, you get rest for your soul, something you can't earn, something you don't deserve, something you just simply freely receive. And so I believe this was a moment that these Jewish believers needed to remember. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it is finished. And now we go and we obey the moral law. We obey the principles of God's word. We pursue holiness in light of that truth and from that truth, not trying to earn God's love. And the second thing is this, avoiding the off-ramp of disunity in the church. And this is quick. This is a very quick point. 
Because the question is this. All right, we settled the issue. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything else equals nothing. But here's the problem. They, they, you know, James is going to say, we need to write a letter. We need to, 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 to send word to, to the Gentiles to, to make sure that they understand this. But there's also going to be a problem here because what about James is, is, is very wise and the Holy Spirit's working through him. He sees an issue here with unity in the church. Because even if this issue is settled, they're going to have problems learning to be family. Because there's, a, there's two different backgrounds there. There's a lot of different things that are going to be buttoned up against each other. And so James sees that coming and he's like, okay, we have to make it. We're going to send down the, the, you know, the uh, clear this up. This is what the gospel is. But we also have to make it possible for Gentile and Jewish believers to have fellowship because division is going to dilute. It's going to end up diluting the gospel that we're trying to defend. It's going to end up interrupting us trying to advance the gospel. And that's the reason he gives the guidelines that he does in verse 20. See, in verse 20, he's basically saying this. What we need to do is we need to write a letter to the Gentile believers to abstain from the things polluted by idols and sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, basically, he takes all of the laws and he brings them down to this small little list. And you maybe you're thinking, what is up with that? I thought we just talked about being free from the law. Now, why is he telling him this? He's saying, basically, he just told the Jewish believers, hey, we need to get a good dose of what the gospel is. But what I want you Gentiles to do is I, I need y'all to do a couple of things. I need you not to have immoral sex. I need you not to choke animals to death. What is that about? For these four laws, you have, he says, avoid sexual morality. Well, what he's doing there is he's reminding them that just because we've said that the law doesn't save you, the moral law of God still stands. And, and they needed to hear that. And he mentions this one because that Gentile world in that this pagan world and in those pagan religions, sexual promiscuity was, was rampant. It was all over the place. So as normal as it was for Jewish believers to grow up with all the things that were involved in the Jewish culture, in that Gentile culture, that promiscuity and the immorality was just a part of their life. And so this is helping them remember, listen, the moral law still stands. You need to pursue a holy life. But then on top of that, he says, I also want you to keep these three dietary laws. I want you to stay away from pollution that comes from idols. So food that's been sacrificed to idols, strangled things. Evidently, Gentile, uh, Gentile people were into choke holding, rear naked choke holding their, their animals till they died. And then they eat the pig or the cow or whatever. I don't know what was up with that. But they said, don't choke the animals. And the third thing is this, don't eat food with blood in it. We can kind of connect more with that. Basically, Leviticus uh, prohibited eating meat with a certain kind of blood. And the Jewish people, even though they became believers, were still accustomed to these types of things, eating their food these ways. So basically what James is saying is for the sake of unity, eat your steak medium well for a while until this thing calms down and things are a little less tense. Or else it's gonna, y'all are going to have a problem sitting around a table eating together. Which is, that's what a family does because you're in a family. So Gentile believers, what I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to sacrifice your preferences for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the mission. You think they wanted to do that? You think anybody wants to eat their steak medium well? No. You want a little blood in that thing. You think they wanted to do these things? No, but what James is saying is as your pastor, he's saying this. I just need you to sacrifice your preferences and do this for a while for the sake of unity. This is the kind of humility and others focused love that was a key to the kind of humility that, that helped them stay together in fellowship as a family that helped them advance the mission. 
and help them rally around the main thing and keep the main thing the main thing. And this is what I want to tell you. We're to be bulldogs about the essential and flexible about the things that aren't essential. In the church, we're to be bulldogs about the things that are essential. Gospel purity, gospel clarity, gospel advancement, essential truths about our faith, virgin birth, the Trinity, the inerrancy of scripture. Those are the hills that we die on. We don't die on hills that are non-essentials that we can be flexible on, especially if flexibility is what is being called for in order for us to experience unity. You say, well, what's some examples of being flexible? Maybe where a Sunday school class meets, that's not essential. Maybe where a service meets. Maybe where you sit in a service. What color the carpet is. We don't have carpet in here, so we're not going to worry about in this room. Style of music. Now, that's where it hits a little bit of a nerve. You got to be careful the kind of hills that you choose to die on. What kind of things that cause you to, you know, create a stink about. Those kind of things, listen, don't always have to be done the way that I want them to be done. They're non-essential. And music's a big one. Because some people say, well, I'm just going to tell you, Pastor, I really can't worship unless there's three hymns and three songs with a hymn-type melody uh, in the set. It's just tough for me to worship. Then there's another side of people in the same church who will say, I have trouble worshiping if all the melodies aren't more modern worship, aren't, aren't something new, aren't something that I'm going to hear on the radio. Right? Problem is, is the phrase, I think. Therein lies the problem. What about we're a family? What about we? Listen, it's about the kingdom. It's about the team. It's about a, listen, it's about a church that is to be made up of people from all kinds of different backgrounds, from all kinds of different cultures, with all kinds of different preferences when it comes to things even like music. And for the sake of unity, it may mean you need to sacrifice your preference when it comes to your choice of the kind of music that you like and to stand there and worship with a glad heart, even if it's not your cup of tea, because the style of the music is not essential. The style of the music the, 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 the medium, it's the melody, which is a medium. It's a vehicle. It's simply there to facilitate what it should all be about, which our hearts should be focused on, and that's worshiping God. Listen, for me, as long, even if it's not my cup of tea and I got my preferences, as long as whatever style of music you choose can be understood and is carrying a gospel-centered, doctrinally rich, Jesus-exalting message, I can worship my king. And even if... And even if, and I was in youth ministry, so trust me, I was exposed to some pretty gnarly styles of music. And there was even times in youth ministry where I would attend a concert with some pretty heavy type style of music, but it was Christian. I didn't get into it, but you know what helped me is this we mentality. I stood there and I watched a student who would not have darkened the door of a church had it not been for some friends who invited him from school and introduced him to this style of music and to see that kid standing next to me singing some of the words I couldn't even understand what they were saying. But singing gospel-centered music and lyrics to a medium and a melody and a style that I couldn't connect with. But because of the we mentality, I was able to even worship in that moment as well. So even when it's not your cup of tea, look around. If others are joining in worship, You can even worship in that moment, seeing that your brothers and sisters are connecting. That's just one example. 
By the way, I reminded our Wednesday night church of this, Wednesday night service of this, that when you do leave a service, and maybe you leave a service, maybe you're leaving today, like, man, that just, that, that, that music, that just, that just didn't really do much for me today. We just need to remind each other that, that, that we weren't singing to you, all right? Just remember who we're singing to, that it's about Jesus. Well, anyway, they go back, that's just one example, but the kind of humility in sacrificing preferences and sacrifice, even liberties. Not using the freedom that you may feel like you have in Christ foolishly. And understanding that things we do can affect other people. They go back to Antioch and this is the way it ends. Look at verse 30. It says they get that letter. You can read it there in verse 30. It says, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Of course they did because circumcision's off the table, right? The men's ministry began to grow again. But in all seriousness, listen, unity was preserved and the gospel advanced. Unity was preserved and the gospel advanced. Here's the sad truth. Here's the sad reality. There's a lot of churches that go into their Jerusalem council moments, that go into Acts 15 moments, that go into chapters like this that never make it out. They never make it out. I never want to be that kind of church. You know how we avoid that? By making sure we resist the temptation of these two off-ramps. Of diverting from the purity of the gospel and of in remaining unified, which is, is going to take sacrifice. It's going to take sacrificing preferences for the sake of unity. That's for the sake of the gospel. Because as we unify and as we keep the main thing the main thing, I believe those are the type of churches that God continues to use, not just in their community, but to the ends of the earth. Now here's, I believe this on my heart. I feel blessed to be part of a church that is like that. But Schindler Drive, as great as the legacy is that we have here at this church, we cannot live on the fumes of yesteryear. We cannot live on the fumes of yesterday. We've got to move forward as God's growing our church, as new members are coming and joining us. We've all got to stay focused on the main thing. We've all got to fight for unity. And together we've got to defend the purity of the gospel. Let's pray. All right, so if you're here this morning, we're going to go into a time of response and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. You may come into this moment depending on religion, depending on good works, and you're realizing that those things can't save you. Those things can't wash the sin stain off of your heart. Only Jesus can. So trust in him this morning foot of the cross, repent of your sin, admit you're a sinner and trust that he's dying in your place there, absorbing the wrath you deserved and you rose from the dead, proving that the work that he came and accomplished and said that he would accomplish, he did. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, man, I'm just too far gone. I've got too much filth in my life. I got too much messed, messed up parts of my past. I'm not sure if I could ever get in to the kingdom of God. I want you to know, listen, Jesus is not on that cross saying, go away and get yourself all cleaned up and come back and I'll see if my death can do anything for you. No, on that cross he says it is finished for rebellious sinners like all of us. And right now if you'll believe that and you'll kneel at the foot of that cross in your heart you can be reconciled with God because it's finished for you no matter who you are. For some of you maybe you've been just Diverted from the gospel in your heart. You've 
you've gotten discouraged, you've gotten kind of stuck in a mentality of kind of performance. And you need to remember this morning, maybe there is sin to confess, but you need to remember this morning, you are forever in the family of God in Christ Jesus. There's nothing you can do to make him love you any more or any less. And you need, your heart needs to be refreshed by that this morning. Or maybe you've allowed preferences and non-essentials to get in the way, even in your own heart. And this morning, you need to just simply say, God, help me to be a warrior and a bulldog about things that are essential and flexible about things that are non-essential for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of unity.